Well, um, we're, we're in a sermon series walking through the Old Testament book of Jonah, and it might seem really odd that we're going to stay in Jonah this morning, but we are going to do that. And so if you guys have Bibles, devices, you want to turn or swipe there, um, we're going to be looking at a couple of verses in Jonah. As you guys are getting there to your seats or whatever, I'm going to give just a little bit of a recap as to where we've been in the book of Jonah. So Jonah is a prophet to Israel, basically means he's a messenger of God to Israel, but not just Israel, but also to Israel's enemies, specifically the city of Nineveh. Jonah hates non-Israelites, so he's both a racist and a nationalist, and so he does not want to go to Nineveh, so he runs away, and his running involves him sailing in the opposite direction away from Nineveh. And as he does this, what we find him doing is endangering himself, endangering the other sailors who are on the boat, and endangering the whole city of Nineveh as well. But God, in his mercy, pursues Jonah. He pursues also the sailors that are on the boat with Jonah, and in all of this, he's also pursuing Nineveh. And he pursues all of these people by throwing a furious storm upon the sea where Jonah is sailing. And so after investigation and understanding what's going on here, the sailors on the boat figure out that Jonah is the one responsible for this storm and that the only way to calm the storm is for them to throw him overboard. And though they don't want to do that, that is what they end up doing. And ultimately, what ends up happening is a fish comes to swallow Jonah. And, and in this, we get a picture of salvation. This is the way in which Jonah is going to be saved physically, but it communicates to us as a reader this idea that God's way of salvation is unexpected. The way in which he saves is not the way in which we would expect him to save. And that uh, proves true again many years later with Jesus as well. So this fish comes and it swallows Jonah. Last week we looked at the prayer that Jonah uttered while he was in the belly of the fish. Today we're going to look at two verses uh, on each side of that prayer. So Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17, and then I'm going to read also the last verse in chapter 2. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then skipping over to chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Okay, this is going to get us to Jesus, okay? All right, so typically, uh, we'll take some time to kind of summarize the verses, to give a little bit of an explanation as to uh, what we're looking at, but there's not a lot that needs to be explained here with what's happening. The author's pretty straightforward. Jonah, after he has been thrown into the sea, is then swallowed up by what the author says is a great fish, so the idea that it's a very large fish. He then spends a few days in the fish's belly before he is then spit out upon dry land. So the messaging is pretty clear here, okay, as to what happened with Jonah, but more of the issue is the plausibility. Could that actually have happened? 
So that's where I want to put our roots down today and spend the bulk of our time together. Uh, and then we will end up getting to Jesus. And we'll talk a little bit about how this foreshadows Jesus. So from a scientist, scientific perspective, okay, it is possible for a human to be swallowed whole by a very large fish like a whale. I don't know if you guys heard the news story. There was a news story in the last couple weeks where uh, a guy was out photographing whales and he actually went into the mouth of a whale but didn't actually get swallowed down. He somehow was able to get back out of it. Yeah, crazy story, uh, but he didn't, he didn't go as far as Jonah, so not as legit. But uh, So like a squid, right? Like they would find a, a whole squid in the belly of a whale. So, so that's possible for a human, for that to happen to a human, though it would be completely rare, right? Like, like it's just not a common thing at all that that would happen. However, if a human made it into the belly of a large fish, uh, it would very quickly dissolve or they would drown uh, if it remained in the belly of the fish. Okay, so what the author of Jonah is suggesting here is impossible. From a physical standpoint, it is impossible for this to happen. Now, it's a remarkable story, right? It makes a great kids' fantasy story. Um, but in our modern context that is firmly entrenched in what science can prove and disprove, th this story has become very suspect. And so the conclusion that many people end up coming to is that it can't physically happen, so it's unbelievable. So, so I it's a miracle, and, and miracles can't be proven by science, right? Thus, they're not real. So, so that's the logic. It's a miracle. We can't prove it through scientific testing, so therefore it doesn't really happen. It, it can't be true. So I've stated this before, but I want to state it again here right now. It's one thing to claim that science can test natural phenomena, physical realities, and make conclusions about our natural world. That, that's what it, science is intended to do, to test physical things and come to conclusions about natural realities. However, it is a cosmic leap to state that science disproves there's anything beyond our physical reality, okay, to exclude the spiritual. So science is equipped to test and comment on natural causes and effects, but it has no capacity to prove or to disprove spiritual occurrences. Science deals with physical things, okay? It is not designed to test and prove or disprove spiritual realities. But many people still make the quantum leap to assume that science excludes or disproves the supernatural. And so then when we read stories like Jonah's, what we do is, or what some people do, is just conclude that it's nonsense, that miracles can't happen. It's not physically possible. And if this was the case, okay, and this is the case for many people, that then the Bible is just a bunch of hooey, right? Like, these are just made-up stories that they're not, there's really no benefit for us to read them. And so, really, we could just go home right now. Right? There's no reason to even gather here and to, to do all of this exercise that we're doing. But here's the thing. If you have two people, one person 
believes in the supernatural, in spiritual realities. Another person disbelieves in the supernatural or spiritual realities. All that we have is two people exercising faith. That's what they're doing. They're both exercising faith in different things, in different directions. But that's what's going on, okay? Two people exercising faith in different things. So both of them should feel this burden, maybe a weighty burden, to prove themselves. So skepticism is not proof, okay? Just because I don't think it can happen doesn't mean it can't or it won't happen. Skepticism is not proof. So we must look deeper for evidence. What, are, what else can we look at at these things? So I'm going to look at a couple things in these verses, uh, and then we're going to move from Jonah to Jesus after we look at these couple things. So in order for Jonah to go into a fish and come out alive, there has to be something supernatural that occurred. Okay? That's the only way it happens. There must be something beyond what we understand, something beyond us, greater than our physical realities. And we get that in these verses, okay? It says in these verses, God appointed, okay? God is spiritual, God is supernatural, he's beyond our physical reality. So he appointed the fish, and then he also spoke to the fish. So here, we are confronted with something that we have to reckon with. We are confronted with God. And, and the Bible is going to force us to reckon with God, to, to reckon with what he says about himself and what he says about us as well. So let's observe a couple things about God here. First of all, God is in authority over the storm that fell upon the sea, okay? He's in authority over that. He caused that to happen. He also is seen as the one who is commanding the fish here. So he possesses a power that is hard for us to fathom, okay? He can create storms, and he can calm storms. Like, for me personally, I can create a relational storm, okay? I, I, I'm pretty good at that, but I'm not as adept at calming those relational storms. And, and I'm guessing, guessing you guys can experience that as well, or you do experience that in your own lives as well. We, we can create storms, but we're oftentimes not nearly as good at calming those storms. God creates storms in such a way to grow people and to mature people, to discipline them and to disciple them, and that's what he's doing with Jonah. So he creates storms to disciple people, will create storms to destroy people. And we see this vast difference between us and God. So God possesses this cosmic power, but he seeks to use it for Jonah's good. A and we can say the same thing for ourselves. Like God possesses this incomparable power, and he seeks to use it for our good as well. But his power isn't just vast, okay? His power is also specific. So it's dealing with a specific man and a specific fish. So God cares about the details, the small things, the things that we might oftentimes think that God views as insignificant. God cares about those things. 
And when we look at Jonah, we find him caring about all of this with someone who is completely undeserving of his care, right? Jonah's running away from him. He's rebelling. He's doing everything God tells him not to do. And yet, God is still showing care towards him. And his care takes the form of Jonah's good, Jonah's salvation. So God's not showing, like, like chasing after Jonah just so that he can then ultimately torture him or build up a case against him. God truly loves Jonah. So in a world that is wrecked by sin and its consequences, I would say this, because we get this picture of God here, okay? In the way in which he demonstrates power and then uses his power for people he loves and for people who hate him. He's using his power for our good, for their good. So I think everyone should want this, okay? Everyone should want this picture of God. What we see in God here, everyone should desire that at some level. So even if we would struggle to believe that God exists, I, I would say we or that person should long for a cosmic being who loves perfectly, who will go all the way to death to save somebody. Everyone should want a cosmic being who possesses incomparable power that is patient with them, that bears with their failings, their rebellion, that continues to chase after, to rescue people who run away from him. Everybody should want that. So the Bible reveals God as powerful and good. Okay, so the second thing that I want to highlight from these couple of verses is a literary detail that I think is oftentimes overlooked in Jonah's story. So when a fiction author is writing a story and they come to a detail that is spectacular, or we could say supernatural, there's a necessary tendency to hone in on that detail, okay? So the reason for honing in on it is because it's special, all right? It, it, it will draw people back. Th- there's a superpower or some other remarkable characteristic that captures the reader. So consequently, any author who knows their craft is going to do everything they can to amplify that point, right? This is the secret that will unlock so much of the rest of the story. This is the thing that's going to set the character apart, that is going to bring readers back, that is going to provide them a profit in terms of commercialization, right? So whenever there's a supernatural thing, you want to hone in and, and stop there and amplify. But notice the author's emphasis in the story of Jonah. There's three brief mentions of the fish. First of all, that the fish swallowed Jonah. Secondly, it talks about Jonah's stay in the fish, how long he was in there. And the third is that the fish vomited Jonah out. Okay? That's it. That's all we get about this occurrence. As I read this, my former life in business says, man, the author really missed an opportunity here, right? Like, they could have spent some more. Why wouldn't they emphasize this part of the story more? Why not settle in here and embellish a little bit to grip the reader, to give some of the gory details of Jonah's suffering and what he experienced while he was in the belly of the fish? Instead, 
what we get is the author records Jonah's prayer. So, so basically, what the author is doing is, is just giving us some facts, right? That's all he's giving us. Nothing embellished, just simple, cold, hard facts. Other than the fact that we get that the fish is subservient to God, right? Like, the author makes really clear, uh, he, say, he notes twice that, that the fish is basically responding to what God is saying and doing. So, it's like the author is focused on sharing facts that won't distract from the main point. And the main point is God. And it's written in such a way that the supernatural isn't even extraordinary, right? As though this is everyday reality, it, that, that it's normative for the one who's doing it. Because it is for God. What God is doing, what God is commanding, what God is carrying out here is normative for him. Th this is who God is. This is what he does. I it points to the godness of God. That he is beyond us. We shouldn't always be able to wrap our minds around everything that God does. What is possible for God, what is natural for him, is mind-blowing, unfathomable for us. God is extraordinary, and he's different from us because of that. And for how mind-boggling it is that Jonah lived in the belly of a fish, what we must understand is that what's going on in these verses is merely a sign. Yes, it's a story. Yes, it happened. But it's a sign. It's a hint of something greater, which is Jesus. So we're going to flip over now to the New Testament book of Matthew, chapter 12. I have referenced these verses a number of times. Uh, actually, verse 42 is the one I've referenced. But Matthew 12, I'm going to read verses 38 through 40. You can follow, these, follow along on the screen behind me. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So one thing I love about the Bible is its coherence, okay? Jesus doesn't leave room for us. So it, it's become, become kind of commonplace, at least I've heard this a lot in the last decade or so, where people will say, I, I'm down with Jesus, right? Like, I, I'm cool with him, but there's a lot of other stuff in the Bible that I, I think is just kind of kooky, and, and I'm not okay with that stuff. But Jesus, like, he's my homeboy, that, that kind of thing. Like, I'm okay with Jesus. But what Jesus does here and in many other parts of the Bible is he doesn't leave room for that at all. Because the way he talks about Jonah makes it historical fact. He's saying this happened. This wasn't just like an imaginary thing. This wasn't just like a story somebody was telling. This happened. And it's going to happen again in an even greater way. So Jesus speaks of Jonah as historical fact. But 
That's not the main point here, okay? What's going on in Matthew 12, so just prior to this, Jesus is, he's going about doing his ministry, okay? So he's been healing sick people. He's been delivering people from illnesses. He's been giving sight to blind people. He's been feeding hungry people. Uh, He's been helping mute people be able to talk, okay? So he is doing all of these miraculous signs. And because he's doing this, it, it's kind of creating upheaval within the nation of Israel. All right? So the religious leaders at that time see what's going on, and they're like, we need to put a stop to this. They hate how Jesus is upsetting the religious landscape amongst Jewish people. And so they're coming to Jesus to ask for a sign, not because they want they, they want to see him do something cool, but they actually want to catch him in his words. They want to be able to accuse him of wrongdoing, and ultimately what they want to do is they want to be able to kill him. And so he says, I'm not going to give you a sign. No, but, but there is a sign that I have that has been given that you can look at, and that sign is the sign of Jonah. So it's a gripping reality that hundreds of years prior to Jesus, we have an event that is specifically hinting at what Jesus is going to do. You've got to see as you you look at the Bible that God is unbelievably intentional in the way that the Bible has been written, in the way that it all fits together. The coherence of the whole biblical story allows Jesus to reference this well-known event. And notice, he's not like giving a description, an explanation of what's going on. These religious leaders, they they knew the story, okay? They knew who Jonah was. They knew it well. Jesus doesn't need to give any description for what's going on, but then he says it's going to happen again, and it's going to happen in a greater way. If you move forward to verse 42, you can see where it talks about it happening in a greater way. But Jesus is saying that the ultimate sign given to humanity is that Jesus is going to go into a grave, okay? And as he goes into the grave in the same way that Jonah went into the fish, he's taking upon himself judgment. Jonah went into the fish as part of his judgment, okay? This is God judging him for his running away from God, but it's also his salvation, Okay, but Jesus is going to go into a grave. He's going to take on the judgment of others, and he will subsequently raise from the dead. And Jesus is saying there is no need for another sign. This is going to be the sign that I am going to give for all of history. But it's not just a sign. It's accomplishing great things as as well. It's accomplishing the freedom of people who are enslaved in sin. And so the death and resurrection of Jesus has profoundly shaped our world, just as Jesus said that it would. And we can look at many parts of our culture and this world to see how it's been shaped by Jesus. You look at the days of the week, right, and the way in which things are ordered. They've been ordered because of Saturday, Sunday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. There's days of worship that happen, and we follow, though it's, it's waning in many parts of culture, like the, the, way, the week and the way it's been constructed is even evidence of Jesus and the work that he did. The, the dating that was used for many years, I know it's not used as commonly now, but the B.C. and A.D., before Christ and after his death, points to the fact that this was a man 
he came and did a great thing. The holidays that we celebrate, even today, right? The fact that we're celebrating Easter and many people in culture, that it has persisted for many years, points to this reality that Jesus was a man who came and walked this earth and, and did these great things. Even book sales, right? The greatest selling book in the history of the world is the Bible. But then there's been so many other books that have been written about this book as well. Many of them trash, but many of them good as well. And, and so there's this reality that we can't ignore Jesus. We can't ignore the fact that he makes this claim that he came, he lived, he died, he went into a grave, and then he rose again. And so we have to do something with Jesus. We have to wrestle with his resurrection. And as we talked about earlier, the tendency in many people in our culture is to dismiss the miraculous. To say, well, back at that time, like, the, the science wasn't credible, right? They, they, could, they didn't know what we know in terms of the science, and, and so if, if they had the same science, then, then they wouldn't come to this conclusion. But we've already talked about how science can't deal with this realm. Other people will say that, that these people at Jesus' time, that they were just gullible, right? Or maybe their hearts were broken, and so they were led astray by this idea that Jesus rose from the dead. Or, or maybe they just sensed him spiritually, and so eventually they began to believe this and rehearse this, and, and it turned into a belief that he actually did rise from the dead, even when he did not. So this is the predominant voice in culture. Th this is where many people land as it pertains to Jesus' death and his resurrection. But what I want to do is I want to take a few mo moments to talk about why Christians must not shrink back from the reality of the resurrection, from kind of an apologetic way or, or looking at some of the circumstances around Jesus' resurrection. So though science can't prove or disprove the resurrection, the historical data is beyond compelling for the fact that it did happen. So what I want to do is I just want to look at uh, three uh, points um, to kind of speak to this idea regarding the resurrection. And, and so some of you, maybe when you come to this time of year and you begin to think about the resurrection, maybe there's like there's some of those doubts that kind of creep into the back of your mind, and you're like, man, could it really have happened? And, and so I want to preach to you guys as well, because there might be skepticism in your own hearts and doubts that you guys deal with, and ways in which Satan wants to kind of worm his way into your hearts and say, ah, could it really have happened? And so uh, I want to preach to that. I also want to preach to you uh, who are Christians uh, that there are really good reasons to believe this, and you can have a ton of confidence in this reality as you go and you interact with other people. And if you're a non-Christian, I want to give these things so that you can hear them and, and hopefully uh, it can be persuasive to you. All right, so the first point that I want to talk about is the empty tomb. Okay, so I'm not going to go to any specific text, but I if you know the, s the resurrection story, but the crucifixion and resurrection story, what you know is because of the upheaval that was happening within the Jewish nation is that they wanted to kill Jesus and they wanted to kill the movement that he was creating, okay? And so when he died, uh, they took many precautions to ensure that 
his body would not be stolen because that was the last thing that they wanted to happen, that he would die because they knew that Jesus said he would rise from the dead. So they wanted to do everything possible to ensure that the tomb was guarded, that, that they, could, they couldn't come and take his body because that would create tons of problems. So they took extra precautions to ensure that that would not happen, put soldiers there. And if you know anything about Jesus' followers, his disciples, like they were not like some Navy SEAL team six that's going to come back and they're going to steal the body, okay? These, these were weak, limp men, okay? They were scared, fearful, hiding away. So, so don't think like, oh man, they, they came up with this great plan and then they stole the body and, and then no one ever broke either, right? Like, oh yeah, and, and said, oh, actually we, we did just steal the body. Like no one broke in that. That didn't happen, okay? That's not who these men were and we, we would not expect to see the change in them if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. So without an empty tomb, Christianity dies because it hinges on a resurrection. That, that's why they were guarding the tomb, taking extra precaution. They wanted to ensure that did not happen. And so what we find throughout history, there was never a body that was presented. It, I mean, if they wanted to kill this, right? Find the body, present it. But there was never any body. And, and so, in fact, what they did is, after they took extra precautions to ensure the body wasn't stolen, after Jesus rose from the dead, then they told those guards and, and they paid others to go and tell people the body was stolen. So the very thing that they did everything to prevent, then they went and told lies to say, this is what happened. Another thing regarding the empty tomb is, as you look back through history, th there's never been pilgrimages made to that tomb. I, and if you look at other religions, this is what happens over and over to, to leaders who have died because they're still there, or at least the dust of them is in those tombs. They make pilgrimages to those tombs to revere them, to worship them, to honor them. There's no place to go for Jesus. There, there's no tomb because that tomb is empty. And so this has been the tradition throughout Christianity. There was never a place to go to honor Jesus other than to gather with the church that he created. A and this is pretty historical amongst, or, or unanimous amongst historical scholars now today. There's not really an argument, was the tomb empty? More of the argument is what happened to the body. But, but in terms of the tomb being empty, it, it's pretty unanimous. That, that is what happened. And so in the same way that when a couple of women went to go and see the tomb where Jesus had been laying, the angel meets them and says, he is not here for he has risen. The reason that the tomb was empty is because Jesus did rise. So the tomb was empty. Secondly, there was testimony of eyewitnesses. So the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, those books were thought to have been written about 50 years or so, 60 years after Jesus lived on earth. And so many people will say, oh, well, that, that's quite a while after that. Uh, the, the documents that we have that are dated most closely to Jesus' life on earth are some letters that Paul wrote that are in the, 
the New Testament that are dated about 15 to 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So after Jesus' resurrection, there are these public documents that are being read in public spheres talking about hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus after his resurrection and saying, if you don't believe, go talk to these people, most of whom are still alive. They're out there and there's lots of them. Go talk to them. And, And most of the interactions that Jesus had were with, after he rose from the dead, were with groups of people. So it wasn't just like one person. Because if you have just one person, it's easy to look at that person and be like, man, that dude might just be fabricating it or hallucinating, right? And, and that's what a lot of people have said, that people just hallucinated this reality. But there, there's not a lot of mass hallucinations on record in history, and the reason for that is because that, that just doesn't happen, right? So somebody's going to call him out and be like, yeah, that one dude was kooky, but the rest of us, we kind of understood what was going on. And, and so the fact that he presented himself to groups of people pushes against this idea that people were fabricating a story. And, and the testimony of eyewitnesses is really important because those who lived at Jesus' time, they, they thought that a resurrection was as unbelievable as we do. Okay? So Jesus mentioned that he was going to die and be raised, right? Who, who was looking for this? Like, no one saw this, right? No, no one, even though it was verbalized, and not a ton, but even though it was verbalized, still people were like, that can't be. Like, they didn't believe that this could happen either. So in the same way that we might have our skepticism, we might have our doubts, they dealt with the same thing, okay? So the idea is that something significant had to have happened in order for them to to give testimony about this. Another uh, point that I want to make as it pertains to the testimony of the eyewitnesses uh, pertains to the fact that the first people to encounter Jesus and to get this this word that he'd been raised were women. Okay, Some of you probably know that women's words in that day, that it is basically as legit as a dog. Okay, So you could go into a court of law and, and a woman's words weren't accepted in a court of law. People would just say, yeah, it's a woman. So, and yet, the first people that Jesus appears to are women. Okay? This doesn't make sense at all. If if they're trying to concoct a story and come up with something, like, this is the dumbest thing to do in that culture. There's an author whose name is N.T. Wright, uh, and he's written extensively about the resurrection, and he makes this point. There would have been unreal pressure at that time as they were writing, recounting the resurrection. There would have been unreal pressure for them to change that story because people would look at that and say, really? No. These women are just, like, making something up. The only reason that the Bible would be written in this way is because that's the way it it happened. Like God was trying to communicate that this was the cold, hard fact. That's the only way that they would leave it in this way. Okay, so there's an empty tomb. There's a testimony of eyewitnesses. And and lastly, uh, we've got to deal with how the resurrection changed Jesus' followers. Okay, I mentioned earlier that his disciples were 
were not impressive men, okay? They were scared, weak men. Especially after he died, they went and hid in a room, okay? But after Jesus raised from the dead, a movement began. A church was born. There was a definitive change in his followers. These followers, these men who were scared to death, went from fearful to fearless giving their lives to preach the gospel, okay? These were poor and marginalized individuals who, who they lived that way in many regards, right? Like they were scared to do things. And yet, after Jesus raised from, to, from the dead, they were still the poor, marginalized individuals that they were, but now they teemed with confidence. When, when other so-called saviors rose up around this time, other messiahs, that rose up, as soon as those individuals died, so did their movement. Things just fizzled. But not with Jesus. What we find happening is massive change happened instantaneously, and it still persists today. Like People were going from, I'm scared to die, to I'm going to preach this message that is going to get me killed. People were willing to die because of what they saw with Jesus. And, and I think that there's a pushback that we can give to this. Well, what about Islam? I think that's a good, a, a good example, right? So people in Islam, they're willing to die as well, right? So what, how is that different? Like, because usually people aren't willing to die, but we do see Christians willing to die, but we also see Muslims willing to die as well. So what's, what's the difference there? Their followers will die, Right? But I think if we look at the whole of the story, like, they lack the totality of evidence. Like, they're still going to a tomb where their leader died and, and never came out. Right? So there's not a lot of sense in doing that. That's not the case with Jesus. He went into the tomb and he came out of it, and that's why we celebrate. Today and the rest of the year, he is victorious over death and sin and hell. He came he lived, he taught, he died, and he came back out. He conquered death. And this is why Christians still gather today and every Sunday and at other times to celebrate a risen Savior. He rises victorious over sin and death and hell. He gave this sign thousands of years ago that altered all of history. And it's a sign that still lives and changes people today. It did, and it does. As we sang earlier, it is good news for the captive. It is good news for those who are ashamed. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the best news in the world. And, and so if you're not a Christian today, if you have not received Jesus' offer of forgiveness of sins that restores you into right relationship with Jesus, that allows you to enter into his family, then the invitation is given to you today to turn from your sins. We call it repentance, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus. He is life. It's what he said, I am the life. He is what we are looking for, what we are yearning for. If we look at Jonah, he was a man who did not have everything figured out, Right? We looked last week, as, as he was in the belly of the fish, he's praying to God. He's actually sinning against God as he's praying to him. 
And yet, God was still gracious. God was still kind. He heard his prayer, he listened to his prayer, and he answered his prayer. Unbelievable. The kindness of God overwhelms. It is unrelenting. So as we talked about earlier, if you don't believe in the resurrection, if you struggle with doubts or are skeptical, at least we should be able to admit, I want a God like that. That is the kind of God that there should be. One who is loving and sacrificial and patient and kind, who gives himself for my good. So if you're a non-Christian, the invitation is turn from your sin and believe in Jesus. If you are a Christian, if you woke up this morning and this news did not hit you like a ton of bricks, if, if this news of Jesus' resurrection is no longer the best news for you as you wake up every day, if you assume it or you find yourself sheepish or intimidated to share it with others, the reality is you may not be believing the gospel. You may be believing something else. You may be enamored with lesser things, with not as good news. Jesus calls us to identify with his death, to die with him as he died, die to sin, and to identify with his life. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have been united with him, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The call is to die to yourself. Die to your selfishness. Turn from your sin and find life in and through Jesus to be resurrected with him. Th this isn't just an abstract thought that we don't experience in profound ways. Jesus is what we need. His resurrection is not only what we need, it's an offer given to us that we can live in, that we can experience. And his resurrection is what we long for. So the call for Christians as well is to repent, to turn from your sins, and to believe the good news of Jesus again, afresh. So there's this reality. The resurrection of Jesus is impossible. And the way it's talked about and viewed today is it's oftentimes viewed with skepticism. And so we look at it and be like, ah, right? But what I want to convey to you is there's this beauty of the impossible. The resurrection is the most beautiful thing in the world. Okay? It is the best news in the world. There is nothing greater, nothing more profound, nothing more powerful. And so this is why, as I talked about earlier in our service, why we are seek to be gospel-centered people. We don't want to celebrate it just on Easter. We want to celebrate this day after day after day to go down deeper into the depths of what it is, to see the beauty in it in greater ways, not just to see the beauty once and then be like, yeah, I checked that box, but there's more beauty for us to behold, that we would see it, we would help each other see it as well. So that's a call for us. Believe the good news of Jesus for the first time or for the thousandth time. Believe the gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank you for
the fact that we can come together. We can look at a book that was written thousands of years ago. And we can see how it foreshadowed the main event in history hundreds of years later. This is not an accidental thing that happened with Jonah. So God, I pray that you would help us to see the beauty of how you have constructed your story. The beauty of how you have caused Jonah to go down into the depths of the sea only to come back out and how this is a whisper a hint, a shadow of something that would come many years later, but in a much greater way. God, help us to see the beauty of Jesus' resurrection. Help us to treasure it, to be emboldened by it. Help us to risk everything in the same way that your followers, as after they experienced and saw you after your resurrection, help us in the same way to be filled with courage, awe, wonder, hope, joy, at the reality that you have come to earth, you took sin and darkness upon yourself, and then you went into the grave, and then you victoriously stormed out of that grave, bringing light to darkness. May we be a people who brings light to darkness, to those around us, that the gospel would advance, that we would help people grow in their understanding and knowledge of who you are, for you are what we have been created for. May we trust you. May we lead others to trust you as well. God, if you're stirring in hearts of others this morning to turn from sin, to believe in you, God, give them what they need. Give them faith. Give them hope in you. Give them clarity of who you are. Woo them. Draw them to yourself. Help us to be a community that can help lead people to you. For the glory of your name. And for our joy, I pray all of this in your name. Amen. Sometimes.